Now, with all that being said, welcome to this morning, and if you see behind me on the screen this little thing called Immigration Nation, this morning I want to take a moment and talk with you about the intersection of um, faith and um, public policy, and this is a little different for me to do this. Uh, So this may this morning feel a little bit more like a talk and a little bit less of a sermon, but I hope that either way it will be helpful for you as you begin to formulate and continue to formulate how you respond and interact in this light. So here's here's why I'm doing this, just so you know. Uh, There's at least three reasons, possibly more, but there's at least three reasons why I wanted to take a moment out of our Sunday morning routine and speak about this issue of um, immigration, refugee crisis in particular, and how um, our faith, and I'm speaking particularly this morning uh, to those who call themselves Christian right, and try to take a position on um, how we should as Christians engage in the current refugee climate that we have in the current um, public policies related to immigration and refugee things. Now, the reasons that I want to take a moment to talk about this are at least threefold. Number one, as Christians, we need to be engaged, all right? I don't want um, us as believers in Jesus Christ to to be cocooned away from uh, policies, national, statewide, or whatever, that impact the way that neighbors around us function. Like, I want us to be engaged, and I want us to be engaged at a critical level, where we're thinking about what's happening, and we're beginning to process that at a biblical level. Like, I want us to, to do that, and to step into that. Now, I can't engage every issue. I can't engage every uh, public policy issue that comes in, I don't think we should in the Sunday morning environment, but this morning I want to uh, do that, because the second reason is... I believe that this issue, maybe more than any other issue, really plays on the issue of fear for us. It plays to the issue of being afraid of people and afraid of what could happen. And as Christians, one of the things that we're told over and over and over and over and over again in the Scriptures is do not be afraid. Like, don't be afraid. In fact, when Joshua was being um, given power as the new leader of the people of Israel, it's very interesting in Joshua 1, over and over and over and over and over again, the people appealed to him. Not only God, but the people appeal to him and they say, please, whatever you do, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Please, we need a leader like that who's not afraid. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament, don't be afraid. And so this issue, maybe more than other policy issues, plays to fear. Christians aren't to fear. So what do we do with that? And thirdly, the third reason why I want to talk about this is because of a technological phenomenon that we are experiencing in our world today that wasn't true even 10 years ago, most likely, certainly not true 15 or 20 years ago, and that is if you are on social media or if you are uh, reading news stories online, the, um, the ability of our current search engines and social media analytics to fine-tune stories to confirm our biases is unlike any other period of time in our history. In other words, if you click on news stories that are highly conservative, you will continue to see news stories that are highly conservative. If you click on news stories that are highly liberal, you'll continue to see news stories that are highly liberal. And the confirmation bias that we have just gets fed, and we begin to be people divided rather than people who can come together and figure things out. And so we need to speak to this this issue that the more I tend to click on and respond to and engage on people who agree with me, the more I tend to think that's how everybody is, and the more I'm willing to yell at the people across the aisle who think differently than me. And so we are in that world, our children are growing up in that world, and it may not be the healthiest thing to do, but we need to know about it and engage it. And so for those reasons, I want to take a moment this morning 
to use a Sunday morning to talk about faith and public policy on the issue of immigration and refugee status. Okay? That, that good enough? All right. Fair enough. If you say no, I'm sorry, I'm still going to go on with it, okay? So with that being said, I want to take this time to do that, and here's what I hope to accomplish. I hope to give you a biblical perspective uh, on the issue of, of immigration and refugee stuff, but I also want to weave that in with current data and facts that are happening now. And I want to end up with a couple of conclusions for us to consider. So essentially, we're going to walk through some biblical perspective, and then we're going to walk through what is happening now and try to just be clear with whatever facts that we can get our handle on and try to give us some, okay, now what going forward. And I hope, by the way, if you can zoom out for a minute on this issue, I hope that this process of asking, what does the Bible say? And then, what is going on? And then, what should I do? I hope that process you can take on almost any issue. And so as much as I want you to get something out of the refugee and immigration conversation this morning, I also would love for you to get a a broader perspective of this is how Christians can engage the world. I need to know what the Bible says. I need to know what the world is saying. I need to know what's happening factually in the world. And then finally, how can I bring the two of them together and press it out to application? How then should we live? So let's start here biblically and ask this question. Does the Bible help us? understand how to think about our current refugee crisis. Does the Bible help us with that? And I'll say this, first of all, theologically, yes. Two really broad theological points. Number one, here's what what I believe, and I think the scriptures teach, that humans are made in God's image. So we're going to start there, that humans are made in God's image. And that means this, that consequently, the second theological point follows, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Like those two broad theological perspectives are where I begin, that humans are made in God's image, and I'm to love my neighbor not because of what they do for me, but because of their imageness. So I'm not to love my neighbor because they look like me, think like me, believe like me, act like me, or even are nice to me, but I'm to love my neighbor on the basis of their imageness, that they are image bearers of God, even if they are evil, if you will, even if they do things for my harm. They still bear the image of God. And so what does it mean as a Christian to hold to this perspective that humans, no matter where you come from, where you live, what you do, are made in God's image. And on that basis, when Jesus says, you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, how then do I love them? What does that look like? Here's where we begin theologically, okay? So theologically, that's true. Now, specifically, I just want to walk you through a few passages of Scripture to help us see from the old to the new God's heart for the foreigner. We're going to begin here in Leviticus 19, and here's what we read. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. This is interesting because we're now talking essentially about public policy. This is business practice. This is the law of the land that business leaders and owners are to function in this way for the very purpose of assisting the foreigner and the poor. That we are to be thinking, if you're alive in this time in the nation of Israel, that God has given to the nation these laws and these perspectives to begin to think, be careful and be compassionate toward the foreigner. We move it over to Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19, speaking about who God is. Uh, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And so the appeal is, remember, there was a time when you too were a foreigner. Therefore, love the foreigners among you. All right? Exodus 23, 9. 
Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. It is easy to oppress a foreigner because, frankly, they don't know our way yet, right? They don't know the system yet. They don't actually know how much it should cost to buy the things that we know, you know that they should charge for. Like, it is not difficult. It is not difficult to oppress to get a little more money out of and make things a little more difficult for the foreigner because they don't know. And, and God's saying here, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. In fact, all the way into Malachi then, here's what the people were doing. Uh, God is speaking here, essentially, he's saying, so I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages and who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, says the Lord Almighty. The issues that make God angry and that he wanted to judge the nation for here in Malachi is one of them is you are depriving the foreigners among you of justice. And he made that clear point. Like, that is not what I want. I want you to care for the foreigners and give them justice. That's what the people of God do. Speaking of that, speaking of that, one of the great leaders of the nation of Israel, Solomon, when he was praying in the dedicatory prayer of the temple, in, uh, here's what he said. Solomon is praying, the big temple is finally built in the Old Testament, and he's praying to God, and he says this, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So the very heart of one of the greatest leaders of the nation of Israel is I want the foreigner who will come to know how great our God is. And I expect that. So God, please have your ear open to the foreigner. That's part of the fabric of the Old Testament nation and part of the fabric of the leader. Now let's move into the New Testament here. And Jesus is speaking to folks, and he's essentially talking about hospitality and caring for people in this context. And he's saying, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. These are very tangible effects of caring for people who are different than us. In 1 Corinthians, we talk about the church, how the church begins to function now, right? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying this, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles. Now, everybody in the world fits in that category. It's one of many categories people fit into, but everybody's either a Jew or a Gentile. No, No matter where you come from, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. This is part of the body of Christ. We are made up of many, 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 many people. Finally, in Galatians 5.14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Now, I could have started there, and I would bet most of you would be like, I think the Bible says we should be nice to people who are different than us. Like, I think the Bible says love the foreigner. But I want you to see, here's the movement of the scriptures from Old Testament policy business policy and law to the heart of a leader, to what got God angry, to Jesus speaking, to Paul's commission on the church, to this essential summary of, you know what, if you forget all that, remember this, love your neighbor as yourself. All right? So this is what I think is happening biblically. All right? Now, the next question is this, what is happening right now? What is happening right now? And this is where it gets interesting. All right? What's happening right now? In January of this year, uh, President Trump signed an executive order uh, 
instituting what we know uh, colloquially as a travel ban. That travel ban was just upheld this week, but changed to move from seven countries banned to six countries banned in what um, uh, I think President Trump referred to as a watered-down, uh, politically correct version. Uh, I'm not, by the way, let me, let me pause for a minute. I am not going to try to make a political commentary this morning. Okay? This is, my intent is not at all. I'm simply trying to clarify facts about where we are right now. Is that fair enough? Can I, can I do that? Can I split that middle? All right. I'm not going to be for or against an individual person. I'm just trying to clarify where we're at. Can we, can we do that? Give me a little grace if you think I've stepped on your toes. And if I do, then let's talk about it. All right. So here's what we know. That there's a current travel ban just upheld this week, this week, by the U.S. Supreme Court from six countries, Syria, Iran, Libya, Sudan, Yemen, and Somalia, in effect, for foreign nationals, unless they have what is... Um, described as a bona fide relationship with someone from the U.S., such as a job offer or an application that's accepted at school, or a spouse or immediate family member, then uh, there's a travel ban in effect for those folks. All right? What else is happening right now, there's, there's more that can be said, but I'll just summarize it this way. We also, um, our current administration has also built part of their platform on building a wall between uh, the U.S. and Mexico. That's just, okay, that's just the facts that, that are there. And that's new, right? And that has not been a part of the conversation politically at this level before. And so some would argue that there is essentially a uh, climate of uh, fear and a culture of kind of exclusivism or, or exclusion that, that is happening at the broadest of levels in our current administration. Some would argue that, right? You may not agree with that, but some may argue that. So here's what I think that I want to say on that issue, and that is this. What's happening right now, and that is this. That when, process this with me for a minute, okay? When fear and compassion intersect, we tend to heed fear's call to safety over compassion's call to love. Now, that may sound like a lot of words there in one moment, but here's what I think is happening. That there's a compassion thread or a compassion stream that we are on, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, where you want to care for and love people. Like, that's biblical. That's a good thing. We just walk through that. There's also a fear street that comes running through our hearts and our lives. Like, if I'm afraid of something, I'm going to protect myself from it. And so what happens when compassion and fear intersect? Who wins? And who gives the right of way in that intersection? And here's what I think is true, that when compassion and fear intersect, we tend to heed fear's call to safety over compassion's call to love. Like, I tend to listen to fear and desire to be safe more than I listen to compassion and desire to love. And I don't know that I blame us for that. The traditional example I might use is if there's someone who's broken into my home uh, in the middle of the night, right? First of all, I'll probably sleep through it. But secondly, if I happen to wake up, if I happen to wake up, and they're threatening my family, and I have an opportunity to, to disable them before they hurt my family, I'm probably not going to read them a Bible verse. I'm probably going to disable them, okay? Like, that's just, like, that's fear's call to safety, and I don't, like, I don't think that's bad for us. I don't think that's a good human instinct. The problem with this is sometimes, sometimes, we can play on people's fears in an unfounded way, and when we do, we make them make decisions out of fear, and they make decisions against compassion or against another competing value because they think something is not true, because they think something is true that is not. In other words, if there were to be, a, let's say, a three-year-old, trying to think of the right age, if there were a three-year-old in my home, and we were having dessert around the table, and we each, everybody got, uh, you know, let's say, two cookies. All right, everybody got two cookies in our home. 
and this kid wanted a third one, and I sold them on the belief, if you eat a third cookie, your teeth will fall out. What if they believe me? I bet I could make them believe me at three. I bet I could make them believe me. They're afraid, and what, they're probably not going to eat the cookie, or maybe I'll say something worse. I don't know what I would say. I'm not going to do that, by the way. I won't torture your children that way mentally if they come to my house. But my point is this. I can make, and you know you can do it too, you can make people afraid of things that aren't true to make them make different decisions, right? And so when we do that, when we play on fear, it's a powerful, powerful motivator that will make me, and probably make you, make decisions that trump other values that maybe should guide our decisions, Okay, so with that being said, I want to talk about what are the facts, what actually is happening. Now, let's begin this way. How many refugees are we actually talking about that are coming into our country? All right, so let's start to talk about these, these facts. There are three million refugees who have come in since 1980. In 1980, the U.S. and the Cong- Congress passed the Refugee Act of 1980, which set up our current national standards for admission of refugees. This process takes... Uh, about one and a half to two years to go through the process. Being selected to go through the process can take anywhere from a week to 25 years. I think the average for some of our local agencies say if you are, dis, um, if you are um, displaced, the average time for you to actually move forward is about 12 to 13 years in the process. Okay, So we're talking about getting selected to go into the uh, refugee process and resettlement process can take uh, for, for some, a near lifetime. But then when you get in the process, it's about one and a half to two years to get through that process, including various checks from the State Department, um, uh, other NGOs, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of reviews and screenings that have to go on. All right? So in 2016, there were 85,000 refugees that came into the United States of America. That's 2016. That number had trended up for the last decade or so, um, just the way that was. President Obama's opinion and desire, I think, was to get 110,000 refugees in 2017. Uh, we were probably trending on the downward cycle on that one now, for sure. Uh, 2016 PA in Pennsylvania, we ranked ninth in the country with 3,219 refugees being resettled in our state. Now, to this question, and this is kind of the, the point of it all, and that is, what threat do refugees present? What is the threat that refugees present? What should I be afraid of here? I want to reference uh, Cynthia Sewell, uh, her, her article from the McClatchy DC Bureau in February of this year, and she was reporting on Trump's uh, initial executive order all right, uh, for a travel ban, and here's what was going on. Uh, the U.S. District Judge, who was hearing this case, James Robart, on, uh, temporarily blocked uh, the travel ban uh, from seven countries. And during the hearing, Judge Robart asked the Department of Justice Attorney Michelle Bennett, who is representing the Trump administration, here's the question he asked. Have there been terrorist attacks in the United States by refugees or other immigrants from the seven countries listed since 9-11? Good question. In other words, have, these, have we had terrorist attacks in the U.S. from seven countries listed since 9-11? Bennett replied that she did not know. The answer to that is none, as best I can tell, said the judge. And then referencing a report from the Cato Institute in September, this author, Cynthia Sewell, you know, said this, and here's what the report is essentially saying. This report on terrorism and immigration, a risk analysis by the Cato Institute of this past year, of the 3,252,000 refugees admitted to the U.S. from 1975 through the end of 2015, 20 have tried to commit attacks, and three were successful. Okay, so of the 3 million 200 and some thousand, 20 of the refugees tried to commit attacks, and three were successful. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. 
All three successful attacks happened in the 1970s, before the Refugee Act of 1980. Each attack essentially killed one person. Three people were killed in each of those attacks, and they were all Cuban refugees who came before the 1980 um, uh, Congress-led Refugee Act of 1980. So that is what's happening from a refugee threat standpoint, as far as we know factually, that we've had this many attempted attacks, and really three have been successful. The report also, you may know some of these... um, Events. The report also examines uh, four terrorism attacks since uh, September 11th, including the Boston bomber, the the Sarnaya brothers, if I get that right, the San Bernardino shooting as well. And ultimately, behind that, we need to know, number one, none of the people involved in that were technically refugees. Refugees are a technical group of people with a very narrow definition. The Sarnaya brothers, for example, were sons of... uh, uh, parents who came in under political asylum category decades ago. There is some information that says there have been about 40 people who have immigrated to the U.S. who have been radicalized here and who have attempted attacks on U.S. soil here, right, in the past, uh, say, about 15, 20 years, something in that range. But here's the issue with that is, again, they were radicalized here, which is really an issue for us, not them, right? It's really an issue for how do we love our neighbor, not that they came in with this mentality. Okay, so with that being said, let me ask this, this one question after I make this final statement and ask one more question. So, so here's, here's the, the question was, what does a threat refugees present? And I, I would say this, if you're going to be a terrorist and use the refugee process to get to the United States, you're basically trying to play the lottery odds because less than one half of one percent of all refugees get resettled in the United States. Less than one half of one percent and even in that the process takes forever and the screening is really significant uh, in that way. Okay. Now with that being said one more question and then I'm going to get to so what. Okay. What is the role of the government? This is an important thing to process for us quickly. What is the role of the government? Because the government thinks differently than the church and rightly so. The government thinks differently in the church, and rightly so. What is the role of the government? Now, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, we read this about the role of government. Romans 13, 4. And this is just one summary verse. But, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The reason I highlighted this in yellow here, rulers do not bear the sword for no reason, is that the government, um, in many ways, will create and then enforce the laws of the land. That's, if I can summarize that, this is what the government will do. It will create and enforce the laws of the land, and rightly so. Which means, if that's true, that the government, uh, and, and our country in particular, while on this July 4th weekend we celebrate being the land of the free and the home of the brave, we're actually the land of the law first, right? Like, I'm not first of all free to do whatever I want. I'm first of all bound by law. In other words, I couldn't even, if I wanted to as a Christian and a Bible-believing Christian, I could not practice some tenets of Old Testament Judaism in the United States of America today. I can't because I don't have the freedom. I mean, I could, and then I would be punished for it, okay? Like, uh, there are calls in the Old Testament for stoning of adulterous relationships. Or, this is even more fun, disobedient children. <laughs> now, I cannot practice that 
here in the United States. Why? Because we're the land of the free, right? We are, yes, absolutely. But before that, preceding that, and necessarily preceding that, we are actually a land of law first. And then we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. And what that means is the government will always think about safety first, not compassion first, and rightly so. Because the government does not bear the sword for no reason. This is what they do. So I don't blame the government for thinking about safety. In fact, we are beneficiaries of that. Make sense? Now, with that being said, without me blaming the government, getting on, I'm not blaming them. It's not doing that. I want to ask the next question, and that is this. And we're getting near the end here. And that is, what and where is the church, the U.S. church, on this issue? And this is rather compelling. Because in 2016, World Relief and World Vision worked together to survey where churches were in North America on this issue. And here's what we, saw. Here's what we see. A 2016 survey by World Relief and World Vision revealed that U.S. churches are twice as likely to fear refugees as to help them. Interesting. In 2016, the essential commentary for U.S. churches is that, yep, we are twice as likely to be afraid of refugees as we are to help them. Okay? That just, those are the facts. So with that, excuse me, with that being said, what can we say? And this is where I want to land the plane. I want to say two things, and then we're going to let you go. Number one, we live in a land of law as people of compassion. I want to encourage us. We live in a land of law, first of all, with a government whose interest is in bearing the sword, if you will, is in protecting its people and rightly commissioned to do so. But we also need to live in that land of law as people of compassion, with courageous compassion. That, that when intersecting with fear, we don't allow that fear to overwhelm us without reason. Like we can't let that without reason, which leads to the second point, and that is that we are not driven by fear, but driven by love for all people who are made in God's image. Like we are not driven by fear. We are not fear mongers. Christians, people who follow Jesus Christ, are not to be afraid. We are to love courageously and passionately all people because they are made in God's image. Not because we agree with them, not because they're the same uh, ethnicity as us, not because they're the same religion, is it? not because, just because they're made in God's image. That's just the call of God on our lives in that way. And so what does that mean? To live in a land of law as people of compassion. Where then can we look around us and see people in our very own neighborhoods who say, you know what? I need to figure out a way to love these people right around me very well. There are several of you who've had conversations with me about involvement in our local Hispanic community. And as a church, we're beginning to take baby steps in that direction and ask, what does it look like for the church to expand its reach and open its doors intentionally? Not just say, oh, come on in, you're welcome, but actually to plan to welcome you and change 
the way that we do some programming or what have you, to be intentional about how do we reach people who are outside of our normal, quote-unquote, right, our, our normal reach? What does that look like for us to be people of compassion? You know, what does that, that mean for us as we uh, continue to, to kind of rise up in this way? Now, if I, can, if I can just talk to you for a minute, here's what I don't want. I, I don't want... I don't want you to get to the next stage in your life and have your kids or your grandkids look at you and ask, why was the church so afraid? And why did the church not help in one of the biggest refugee crises that our world has seen? And I don't want you to have to say, number one, didn't do our homework. Number two, we were afraid. I don't want that. And let me say, I can't leave without saying this. We stand on the shoulders here of generations of people who have not been afraid and who have shown great compassion for refugees. Many of you have been involved in helping resettle the Ted Yao family. This church has that history. And the Chair Below family. This church has that history. And there's a family from Russia that was resettled through the help of this church. This, fam- this church has that history. And that is why I'm so grateful that the generations have handed that down to us to say this should be normal. The church should care for the foreigner because this is how God has made people of all times and all ways to know him. Which is why I'm so grateful for those of you now who have helped resettle and worked to resettle our most recent refugee family. I know that they are now moved But it doesn't matter. The point was there, and we stand ready as a church to receive another family. And I just want to say, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm serious, because churches in North America are twice as likely to be afraid than to help. There's something different here. And I don't want you ever to lose that. Whatever you do, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do your homework. Ask, what does the Bible say? What can I do and how can I love and serve my neighbor with compassion? And let's figure out ways to make every story matter and love our neighbors with abandon. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be in your word and also to be kind of in this world in a a little bit of a more uh, in-depth way this morning to engage in what's happening around us, the things that we read and see, and the impact of our, uh, our current world and current leadership uh, at a national level. I pray that you would give us as uh, men and women the courage and vision to be uh, courageous, to be fearless, and to be uh, compassionate no matter what, to, to hold to this belief that men and women are made in your image, and on that basis we love sacrificially. And that is difficult.
but help us never to lose sight of that. And where fear and compassion intersect in our hearts, Father, I pray that you would clarify for us what we really need to be afraid of and what we don't. So, Father, we thank you that you are a good, sovereign, and loving King over all. And give us courage to love those in our neighborhoods now well as we as a church and we as individuals continue to grow and walk in our love and our faith with you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.